Hello, and welcome to the Human Entropy Podcast, a podcast where we can discuss the chaos, the adversity, and the triumph that is being human. I'm Felicia Parker, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm passionate about sharing the resilience I see in other people that inspire me to chase what makes me feel most alive. This is a place to be a friend, a place to encourage, and a place to challenge. This is Human Entropy. standing hunched over my bathroom sink as I say these words to you into my microphone. This is another abnormal episode. I know spooky season is over, but one true crime episode clearly wasn't enough for me. This episode is fun because I didn't have to do any of the research. My friend Carly did plenty of incredible research on a really spooky case. And so again, listener discretion is advised. Hi, Carly. Hi. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Your looks beautiful this morning. Thank you. She got another job. Today is fun and different and really I don't have to do any work because you are going to be telling me about a case because one spooky true crime episode was just not enough. Therefore, it's all you. This is the Carly show. I'm oh, ready. Oh, no. yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh yeah. I'm excited. This will be fun. And also side note listeners, the cat is like on the prowl in the background of my house. I'm sorry if you can hear her. I had her kept put away in my room and she was meowing like crazy and I didn't want that to be distracting. So what are you teaching me about today? I was trying to find the best scenario of a case that we could talk about that was kind of attached to some of the scarier films in the industry and I had heard about this person but I'd never actually looked into who he was so today we're going to be talking about Edward Theodore Gein who also goes by Ed and he Edward Gein I've been saying Gein this whole time oh no it's it's Gein, G-E-I-N, yeah. Oh, um, West, we pronounce everything wrong. That's okay. I'm already, like, in advance if I say anyone's name wrong in this. Please forgive me. Um, but first, I wanted to talk about where I kind of got, like, my research from. There's a guy who wrote and produced this biography about him that I found on a website called Daily Motion, and his name is Alex Flester. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. And so just shout out to them for helping me get all this information that we're going to talk about. So Ed Gein was born in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and he was was born on August 27th, 1906, so a long, long time ago. His mother was named Augustus Gein, and we'll learn that she had a big part to play in a lot of Gein's um, psychological just his development, just his psychological development, I think. They moved from lacrosse when Gein was eight. And what's interesting about his mom is that she was a very religious woman. She was God-fearing and she basically preached a lot to the boys. Um, Ed had an older brother named Henry. So it was his mom, him, his brother, and then his dad. So there was four of them. 
they talked about in the documentary that the reason why they left lacrosse was because Augusta related it to Sodom and Gomorrah. And just a lot of talk from Revelation about women being evil. And I think she I did I think she took it from Revelation 17, where it's talking about the judgment of the great prostitute who sits enthroned on many waters. I'm pretty sure it was um, based off of a dream and the angel came and interpreted it. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the chapter, the woman is explained to represent the city of Babylon, which rules over the kings of the earth. And it talks about how kings and men are all like seduced by this woman. And I, I think maybe she misinterpreted it. Revelation is just hard to understand in itself. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of, that's like what I found in that chapter. But so he already kind of had a skewed version or skewed, a skewed, a skewed view on women mm-hmm. from what his mother was preaching to them when they were young. His dad was an alcoholic. He was a grocery store owner, and apparently, like his his wife, she pretty much ran the house. She was known to be more domineering. Mm-hmm. So you got that head of the house, an alcoholic father and then two sons. So they lived on a 200-acre farm mm-hmm. in Plainfield, Wisconsin. So that's where they moved that's where they moved when he was 8. And this is where he lived his life until he was basically taken in custody. So fast forward to 1940 and Ed is about 34 years old. Mm-hmm. His father, George Philip Gain, passed away because of a heart attack. So Ed doesn't have a father anymore. In 1944, there was a brush fire that was out of control that Henry and Ed were at on the farm. Henry was born in 1901, so he was the older brother. And they were just out. And when this fire started, Ed couldn't find Henry. He couldn't see him because of all the smoke and everything from the fire. So he went to get police. And he claimed that he didn't know where his brother was but led him right led, led the police to Henry's body so, so so something's not adding up and there also was found to be unusual bruises i think it was like on his head um that were never answered for one of the guys in the documentary was saying that maybe they the family had already been through a lot where they just didn't want to just disrupt anything else in their life. I mean, the father's just died and now Henry has mysteriously died as well. It kind of makes you wonder what actually happened if Ed did something, if he didn't. There's just no way to tell. So now Ed and Augusta are the only ones living in the house. It's just mom and son. Mm -hmm. And in like just a few months later, his mom had a stroke and she was paralyzed. So like months after burying her firstborn son, she has a stroke that has paralyzed her and Ed has taken responsibility of taking care of her. Mm-hmm. And I, my grandmother had a stroke and I know how, or what I've heard from my dad, how much of a toll that can alone can take on a person mm-hmm. who's trying to take care of someone in that state. It's not easy. So I can't imagine that it made the living situation any easier for either of them. 
But then in 1945, when Ed is 39, his mother has another stroke and she dies in December of that year. It's just tragic, all of these losses that have happened so close together. There was talk at his mother's funeral that Ed was kind of acting like he was a little boy and that he had kind of lost all of his sanity after his mom passed away. And around town, people said that he was like a nice guy, but everyone knew that there was something off. He was just a little, little bit odd. We're in 1945. Ed's living alone at this farmhouse. If it's anything like my grandpa's farm, it can be very isolating. And I mean, in my opinion, it's a little bit spooky on farms. I didn't grow up on one, but I can imagine. And from the photos of his house, one of the guys was like, if you wanted to have a Halloween party or do something like that, you would go there because it was so spooky. No one had parties there. No one like went in his house. But that's just kind of tells you how secluded and isolated he was. And so while Ed was living alone, he would do odd jobs around town. He would help out neighbors and he would work on threshing crews, which are basically people that are helping farm other people's land. Mm -hmm. And so that kept him busy, but no one, again, no one ever went in his house. No one looked into what his life was like. He was someone that everyone knew. And everyone thought he was a little bit odd, but he, but that he was harmless. You emphasizing that is making me think something's in his house. Okay. I know I'll find out. You know you'll find out, yeah. Along with being so-called nice and harmless, he was also a very hard worker. That's what everyone said. Anyone that he worked with, he just went above and beyond. But women that he was around never felt very comfortable around him. They said that his stares made them uncomfortable. And I think that there's something about, there's something to say about people's eyes. And I know that we've talked about this before. You just, you can feel it. It's like discernment. You know, you can see into the whole, the win the eyes of the windows to the soul. People knew, people that had an intuition that something at least the women did, that something was off. November 16th, 1957 was a Saturday, and this was the mark of deer season. Let's talk about Plainfield, Wisconsin. It wasn't a very big town there. The population was maybe about 700 people. There are a few stores, a tavern, a few markets, some restaurants. There was a local hardware store owner named Bernice Warden, she was 58 years old in 1957. That's where we're at right now. There was a day where she did not show up to open up her store. And the locals were worried because they couldn't get into the store. And it, I'm assuming it was just unusual because there's not a lot that happens in small towns anyway. So they say, and so her son had just come back from hunting because again, it's the start of deer season. And he got into the store and found blood on the floor. Bernice was nowhere to be found. So he called the police and told them that the day before he remembered seeing Ed Keen in the store inquiring about antifreeze. 
So he's the person that her son remembered. And so, of course, they went about two hours later to check out Ed's house. So the police go to Ed's house to see if they can talk to him. And all the doors were locked and there's no electricity. So there's no lights on. And this was at, this was at night when they went to visit. Oh, that's scary. So they couldn't get into the house. They couldn't find Ed, but there was a shed out back. So they went there to see if they could find anything. And they're searching around the house with flashlights because again, they can't see. And lo and behold, let me back up. When hunters get deer, when they hunt deer and they shoot them and they kill them, they'll take them back and hang them up to be gutted. Okay, they're in the shed. There's no electricity. You can't really see what's in front of you. All you've got is a flashlight. And then one of the cops bumps into something. Uh -uh. They turn their flashlight and it's Bernice. She's hanging upside down from the rafters and is decapitated. It's not looking good for Ed. It's not looking good for Ed. Or anybody else in the situation. It's not looking good for Ed. <laughs> so they find, they find her body and they take Ed into custody. After they find her body, the police confronted him with Orton's corpse and he came clean about it and he began to confess. And the only thing that he requested from the police was that he get a slice of apple pie with some cheddar cheese on it. So the police go back to Ed's house. They start searching and the place is just in shambles. There's trash everywhere, newspapers. It's com in complete disarray. But they start finding things that you wouldn't particularly have in your house. They found some human skulls that had been turned into bowls. They found a, like a string of trinkets, they said, and they were actually nipples from breasts. Insane. There were shade poles made of women's lips, apparently. There were lampshades and furniture that were upholstered with human skin. What? And that there was also these masks that were on the wall that were clearly from humans that had been like flayed to make this type of mask. Their faces? Mm-hmm. This, this is 57? Oh, started deer season. <laughs> <laughs> ah. They found this thing that they called a mammary vest which was the upper torso of a woman, and there were straps attached. And along with that, there were also leggings made, made from human legs, things that he pretty much wore. And he also had women's genitals that he would like put on. It's really bad. The other big discovery that they found was in the kitchen, they found a brown paper bag and it had someone's face in it. And this someone had been missing for over three years and her name was Mary Hogan and she was a tavern owner locally. What the hell, Ed? I know. I really don't think, I mean, I know his name, but I really don't think I've heard any of this. Let me tell you about Mary Hogan. This woman, Mary Hogan, was a tavern owner who had been missing for three years prior to Warden's death. And she was 
known around town as being called Bloody Mary because she was just a tough talking lady. She's just one of those gals. I wonder, this was a question that was going through my head because of Ed's relationship with his mother being like love hate and her pretty much being the only woman in his life. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if he picked these women or like chose them because they reminded him of some version of his mom. December 8th, 1954, a man was going to the tavern to buy some ice cream for his daughter. And he went in and he saw blood and some money on the floor at the tavern and he ran out. No one found her body and it remained a mystery until 1957 when they searched his house and found her face in his kitchen. Before finding her, locals would, one of the, one of the guys was saying that people would ask, well, where, where's Mary? Where, where, like, where could she be? And Gein, in one of these conversations, responded with, well, she's like over by my place. But no one thought about it. They just thought like he's the town oddball. It didn't seem like anyone had any regard to like what he said. And I had to pause the documentary because I was like, what? So yeah, I just, maybe people just disregarded it because they just, they didn't really think anything of it because he was harmless and a nice guy. You would think because he's the town oddball and he's saying that, that you would be suspicious of him when you already are saying that he's a strange man. Yeah, you can assume what happened to Mary, but the thing is, when he was taken into custody after they found Warden, Mm -hmm. he confessed to killing two women. So he confessed to both of those murders, but how did all the remains get there? Are those from other people? Are those from other victims Mm -hmm. of Ed Gein? Answer to that question is that he was a grave robber, essentially. He would read the obituaries and then have a nighttime raid and go out to local cemeteries and dig people up. Then I'm guessing he read obituaries because bodies wouldn't be that old. Like they wouldn't have been dead for that long. That's why he's like going in. Okay, that's, yeah, that could be something. I think that, I mean, it seemed like a lot of, from from what they found, it seems like a lot of the, the people that were dug up were women. Maybe that's why he was reading the obituaries to see who had passed away. Maybe to see if someone was best fitting for whatever he wanted to do with mm-hmm. the body. To be able to use for clearly his house and the <laughs> act of putting on... And the thing with the, the string with the nipples on it that you told me about, that sounds... My boobs hurt. <laughs> I know. Mine my, my did too when I was listening to him say like, it was a string of treatments. Oh, wait. What? They were actually nipples from breasts. Oh, that's so gross. But in my mind, was he trying to give life to his mom again in this way? Was this why he was taking these certain body parts to make these masks and figures to make it seem like she's back with him again. And they don't know if he was like doing anything um, sexual or if he was eating the bodies either. I, I think that from the optimistic view that I want to have and find some good, I want to assume that maybe he didn't do that stuff, but there's just really no telling. He's confessed to killing two women. So the trial begins. One of the guys was saying that 
they think that it all comes back to his mom, back with what we were just talking about, about losing his mom and, and being in isolation. And the point that I didn't add in the beginning was that when he, he went through school up to the seventh grade and he left school at the age of 14 and he just worked on the farm for the rest of his life for the most part and did the odd jobs, threshing, all those things. So he really didn't have a connection to the real world at all. And after his dad and his brother passed away, I mean, he only had his mom. But again, he didn't really have any real relationships with any women. And I think that, that kind of plays a part into the role of everything that he was doing with the grave robbing, the women's suits, problems with his mom, like all the things. On January 6, 1958, the hearings began to see if he was competent enough to stand trial. Mm -hmm. And Dick Leonard, who was a reporter, was saying that he heard Ed saying he, he was just really fearful and that he was really worried about whatever the court was going to do to them, do to him. Mm -hmm. And Dick said that he took his hand almost like he was trying to grab for his mom or someone to to have some comfort in while going through this. They declared him legally insane and he was taken to the Central State Hospital for the criminally insane mm -hmm. um, in central Wisconsin. And they said he was suffering from schizophrenia, hallucinations, delusions. One guy also said that Ed thought that he was like an instrument of God with the power to raise the dead. Just wild, wild things. And I'm sure that he listened to this stuff from his mom if she was the preaching type of lady that she was when he was growing up, which makes me think of like the Waco scenario and like all these other cult leaders that use God as their reason for doing bad things. Just that can spiral into a whole other conversation. But he, I mean, he was sent to a psychiatric hospital. That's where he was. After he was taken to the psychiatric hospital on March 30th, 1958, which was Palm Sunday, there was scheduled to be an auction of all of Ed's belongings. But mysteriously, on March 20th, 10 days before the auction was, supposed, was happening, there was this strange orange haze that filled the town sky. Ed's house was reduced to rubble and there had been a mysterious fire that ruined everything. Interesting. They let Ed know about it, and his response to his house burning down was just as well. That's all he said. And they took all of the human remains to, like, the state crime lab and continued to sell the estate along with, like, his car and, and other things like that. And this is what I really wasn't that surprised about. Whoever bought his car decided to take it to county fairs. And there were signs that were like, look at the car that transported the dead bodies from the graves, like Ed Gein's car. And people would pay admission to go look at his car, which is just wild because I don't know, it's like a, it's like a double-edged sword of, is this glorifying this man? Or are, is, are you trying to like spread awareness or are you just trying to monetize what happened? So his estate was sold and it was farmed basically and then eventually sold off again, but it stayed in the family of the man who bought it. I mean, Ed really has nothing. So when they went back to search through all of his house and they found all of the human remains and everything that went along with that, there was a doorway that was boarded up 
that they eventually got into. And they discovered a room. And remember, his house was just trashed. But in this particular room, it was in pristine condition. And it seemed to be the room that his mother stayed in. Like the bed was made, the side table had a Bible on it. You could still see like the rosy faded color of the wallpaper along with like her chairs and stuff. And it looked to be a shrine that Ed had left to be untouched, which is interesting because we can assume a lot in this because we don't know what I don't know. It seemed it seemed like a part of him probably wanted to keep her alive in his mind, but she she had been dead for 12 years when when all of this started about him getting arrested and them searching the house. While Ed was in the hospital, he was said to have been a model patient. He was quiet. He kind of kept to himself. One of the workers said that they would play cribbage together and he would often, they would see him daydreaming. And what's odd is that there were some times where he would talk about women and what he wanted to do to them in a negative way where they knew something wasn't right. But it was almost like a switch was slipped because he would go back to being like his quiet self. And I don't know, I think I think the, the schizophrenia and the hallucinations and the, all of those come into play because of his his mental state. But in 1968, the doctor wrote that he was fit to stand trial for the murder of Bernice. It it was a nine-day trial where he was found guilty at the age of 62 in the early 70s, and he was taken to a mental institution where he would remain. And they said that when he entered the courtroom, it was dead silent, and he turned around and he bowed his head to the audience. On July 26, 1984, Gein was 77 years old when he died at the Mendota Mental Institution due to a cancer-induced liver and respiratory failure. Ed was buried in Plainfield, Wisconsin, next to his mother. His tombstone was eventually stolen and then recovered. So I wanted to ask you some questions if you've ever seen these certain films. In 1959, Robert Bullock wrote a book called Psycho that is pretty much based off of Ed Gein, the character of Norman Bates. That's kind of where he got his inspiration from. And in 1960, Alfred Hitchcock made a film about it. And I wanted to know if you had ever seen Psycho. Yes. With Psycho, with Norman Bates, there's obvious parallels with... Ed Gain and his mother's relationship, as it is with Norman and his mother. But there's another movie that I actually haven't seen because it does look insane and very spooky and scary. And I don't know if I can handle it. It's been on my list, but I've never bit the bullet. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Have you watched that? Yeah. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about it. From what I can remember, because it's been that long, I mean, like, in middle school and, like, the first few years of high school before we could drive and go anywhere, we were always watching scary movies because it was, like, the thrilling, exciting thing to do. So I was young. Kind of like what we do on the weekends. Right. (laughs) I was younger when I saw it. Mm -hmm. The only thing, honestly, I really remember is the beginning when this woman pulls a gun I'm pretty sure out of her hoo-ha. It's, that was like, oh, cool first 10 minutes of this movie. 
I mean, yeah, we're watching a scary movie, so it's like, what do you expect? But I guess, to be honest, I don't really remember much else about it. But I know that that was a real person, like that that actually happened, so they say. So the guy is named Le- like Leatherface, and they say that Ed Gein was the real Leatherface because in the film, I've literally only seen the trailer, I couldn't even finish the trailer because I was just disturbed. But he has on another person's face as a mask. That's what he wears. And in his house, and I, I think it's the family that he lives with, they, that is his family, something like that. They have, they all have the human face mask. But they also have furniture made from human bones. Texas Chainsaw Massacre was directed by Toby Hill who claimed that it's loosely based off of Ed, who wore human masks and had furniture that was upholstered with skin. And I think that's where they got the idea of the furniture made out of bones. Got it. Along with that, it's been years since I've seen Silence of the Lambs, but they make a connection to Buffalo Bill. I was gonna say that all sounds like Buffalo Bill. Yeah, who's just insane anyway and terrifying because he would make skin suits out of women's body parts and that is exactly what Ed Gein did so you can see how these great writers of horror and all of the thriller movies that have taken from this this man I mean he's got I mean everything that a writer would need if they wanted to make a horror movie Silence of the Lambs is my favorite movie of all of those. I know it's really weird for me to like it as much as I do, but it's just such a good movie. It really does change your mindset when you know that things are based off of real people. Yeah. I mean, we can sit through it and not worry because Pennywise is not real. He ain't real. Well, I think that was spooky, falls into the spooky season category. You hit the nail on the head. The whole story is macabre. Everything that he did, macabre. If you like what you've heard and want to support this project, if you're streaming on Spotify, it'd be amazing if you could follow the podcast and download each episode as you stream them. If you're listening on the podcast's app, please give the show a five-star rating and it will help out immensely. Most importantly, of course, share these episodes with the people that you know. Theme song and audio production by Tip Frank. Podcast artwork by Sierra Scott, Lydia Massey, and Kinsey Maroney. I appreciate everyone who's taken the time to listen to this. Until next time.